So let's read through the chapter together. Paragraph 1. Those whom God effectually calleth, He also freely justifieth, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins, and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing Christ's active obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience in His death for their whole and sole righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves. It is the gift of God. Now, we're going to focus our attention on this paragraph, but I'll just point out that in what we call the doctrine of justification, God accounts and accepts the sinner as righteous based solely on the righteousness of Christ. Paragraph 2. Faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and His righteousness, is the alone instrument of justification. Yet it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces, and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. So we are justified through the instrument of our faith alone. Faith. But this kind of faith is never alone in the believer. It's always accompanied by other manifestations of grace, so that a person never has to say, well, I believe, just take my word for it, even though you don't see any other manifestation of the work of the Spirit, trust me, I believe. No, we would, that's not how this works. Where there is the grace of faith, it brings along with it other graces. And so the, that will be seen where this faith is seen. However, those accompanying works or graces have no bearing on justification. Paragraph 3. Christ, by His obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt of all those that are justified, and did by the sacrifice of Himself in the blood of His cross, undergoing in their stead the penalty due unto them, make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to God's justice in their behalf. Yet, inasmuch as He was given by the Father for them, and His obedience and satisfaction accepted in their stead, and both freely, not for anything in them, their justification is only of free grace, that both the exact justice and rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. The point here is that God does not set aside justice in order to justify sinners. Rather, God satisfies justice in Christ and then extends His grace to sinners. The bar of God's justice is never lowered. It never moves because it is, it is, uh, it is who God is. His righteous standard is a part of His very being. It cannot change. Therefore, His justice is satisfied in Christ and then He extends grace to us. Paragraph 4. God did from all eternity decree to justify all the elect 
And Christ did in the fullness of time die for their sins and rise again for their justification. Nevertheless, they are not justified personally until the Holy Spirit doth in due time actually apply Christ unto them. Justification is through the instrument of faith. Therefore, we are not justified until the moment in time when we exercise that faith. Even though God has decreed it from eternity, even though the work upon which it is based, Christ, has already happened in the past, we're not justified, a person is not justified until they exercise that faith. To put it negatively, we are not eternally justified uh, as, as some have taught. Paragraph 5. God doth continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified, and although they can never fall from that state of justification, yet they may, by their sins, fall under God's fatherly displeasure. And in that condition, they have not usually the light of His countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. Being justified does not mean that our sins have no consequences. God is our Father, and our sins displease Him as a Father. Our sins affect our relationship with Him as a Father. We are justified, that can never change, but our sins do have an effect on our relationship with God. Paragraph 6, the justification of believers under the Old Testament was... In all these respects, paragraph 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, in all these respects was one and the same with the justification of believers under the New Testament. In other words, anyone who has ever been a Christian, everyone, anyone who's ever been justified was justified in this way through the instrument of faith looking and taking hold of Christ the Messiah. Now, as with many of the chapters in our confession, this paragraph lays out, or the first paragraph, lays out in seed form what is then opened up and developed in the, the final five paragraphs. And so what I want to do is basically just focus on that first paragraph and, and unpack what it says because it covers all of the fundamental concerns of the doctrine of justification. And I will say this because I've said it many times and you've heard it many times, I know, the doctrine of justification is the doctrine, according to Luther, of a standing or falling church. The doctrine of justification uh, is absolutely fundamental. Um, th there is no, there's no room for discussion here. There's no negotiating this doctrine. This is bedrock. Last week we looked at the doctrine of the Scriptures. That too is bedrock. There's no negotiation there, there's no wiggle room. We, we don't barter these types of doctrines. This is absolutely foundational to what we call Christianity. If you get this doctrine right, you have the gospel. But if you get this doctrine wrong, you have no gospel apart from this doctrine. And it's very important that we never shift from the way it's articulated here. So then, before we jump into the paragraph, I want to answer the question... What exactly do we mean when we use the word justification? This is a fairly common term in English culture. Somebody might say, well, well I felt justified in my actions, or, or I believe that she was perfectly justified in the way that she responded. That's not a strange word, but 
the way that this word is used in the Bible in this theological and doctrinal sense, the term that the Apostle Paul grabbed to, to, to use and articulate in the Scriptures, uh, when we begin to consider this word, we have to be very clear on what we mean because it's not, um, well, I should say positively, it is a very specific kind of word. Justification, the, the, the Greek term that's used in the Bible, is a legal term. It is a term that you would see used in the parlance of the courtroom. We might say it is a term that, that comes under the heading of forensics. It's a forensic term, a term you would hear in the courtroom. Now, in this courtroom that's being described in Scripture, the judge is God. The defendant, the one who has committed the crime, is you, the sinner. And the plaintiff, the one bringing the charges, is also God. You are guilty of sins. You are guilty of crimes against your Creator. And that one that you have sinned against, the one that you have committed these crimes against, is also the judge. And that is the universal condition of mankind apart from Christ. That's where we stand. Sinners against God, who is our Creator. He's also our judge. The sins stand against us. That's the, 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 the imagery that this word comes into play. And in its strictest sense, the word means a legal declaration of righteous. God, in, this, in the unfolding of this doctrine, and we'll, we'll go a little bit further, but from the outset, God hears your case, the gavel falls, and He pronounces the verdict, righteous. That's the, the picture that this word carries with it. He doesn't simply say, not guilty. He says, righteous. That's justification. Now this word is used in, in many texts that we know. We can look at it, two of them. Turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified or and are declared righteous by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. They're going back to emphasize the point that was made in the confession. When Paul says, for all, in verse 23, um, we would say, yes, all men. But Paul has specifically in mind in the argument of Romans, Jews and Gentiles, that the only way a Jew can be saved, the only way a Gentile can be saved, is by this one means of God putting forth His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This, this is the only way. There are not multiple ways of salvation. That's what Paul's arguing there. But he uses that term justified. Now turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And here we get a, a, maybe even a little more clear of a picture of how this concept of justification works itself out. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 11. Paul has just described to the Corinthians the, the plethora of sins that used to characterize them. And then he says in verse 11... And such were some of you. Notice the tense of the verbs. But you were washed. 
you were sanctified, you were justified. Or we could say, you were declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, that, I believe that this text is an important one because Paul is sort of describing the process that they had gone through in coming from what they used to be to what they are now. They're, they're, he's describing their past life and this great change that took place. That all of the verbs are, are past tense. This happened, this happened, this happened, and therefore you're not like you were. And he says, you were justified. The, the term there is in the aorist tense, which means it's a, it was a once-for-all, moment-in-time action. Justified. The gavel fell, and your case was settled. And it's also, I think, worthy of note that it's in the passive voice, which means justification was something that happened to them. They were passive, and this legal declaration is cast upon them, or cast in their favor. Paul says that when this great change took place in them, when they were regenerated and set apart unto God, that this declaration of legal righteousness was passed upon them. The judge declared them righteous. Now, were they not still guilty of sins? They were. Paul is actually addressing them on practical matters as he's saying this. He, he just had to rebuke them because they were taking one another to court. They are still practically in their lives actually sinners. And yet, Paul says, the judge has already at a point in the past dropped the gavel. He's already declared you righteous. When we can turn the, the mirror back on us. Are we not guilty still of many sins, even after our coming to Christ? Are we not guilty of sins? Of course we are. But if you are a Christian, God has already pronounced you legally righteous. Again, not just not guilty, but righteous. A legal declaration. Now let's look at this first paragraph. Those whom God effectually calls, He also freely justifies or he freely declares righteous and 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 if you're if you're a thinking person at all you, you're asking how can this be how can he declare righteous people who are not actually in themselves righteous he freely justifies now the confession doesn't immediately go into explain positively it begins by uh, telling us what justification is not it begins with a denial we'll call this denial number 1 God freely justifies us not by infusing righteousness into them. To infuse, it means to pour. So what the confession is saying is, somebody might suggest, okay, I understand God comes along and He, he saves a sinner and He somehow pours or infuses righteousness into their soul so that then now they actually have righteousness because God poured it in. And then He says, okay, righteous based on what He just poured into them. Or they may say, Christ has done a certain uh, a bit of, of activity for you, and then I'm going to pour in this in addition to that, and God declares you righteous. And what the confession is saying is that is not what we believe. We're not declared righteous because God pours or infuses any kind of righteousness into us. Now, how do we know that that's not the case? 
Because we still sin. We, we're, we're, we don't have what people are saying is being infused into us in that way. Now, yes, we are growing. We are advancing. We, we increase in righteousness. But when we're talking about the doctrine of justification, we're talking about something that happened in a moment. We're not talking about a process. Our growth in sanctification, our growth in holiness and righteousness is no way worthy of the declaration righteous. Even on our, our best day, our, our final day before entering into eternity, we can't actually look in the mirror and say, I think I've attained righteousness. It won't happen. So it, it's not that. It's not that he, he, he infuses righteousness into us. Moving from that denial, then we have a positive statement. Rather, God justifies, not by infusing righteousness, and then we have several steps. Step number one, He does this by pardoning their sins. So God does not count the sins against the sinner. He pardons them. Step two, God proceeds forth to account or accounting and accepting their persons as righteous. The word account means to reckon or to consider. So he, he reckons or he considers and accepts the person as righteous. In justification, then, God declares us righteous, not by pouring righteousness into us, but rather, He doesn't count our sins against us. He pardons our sins, reckons us as righteous, and receives us to Himself as righteous. Now, that we haven't answered the question yet. How can, that, how can it be okay for God to do that? How can God account and accept the sinner as righteous, even if our sins are pardoned? Let's say God says, All right, I'm not going to count your sins against you. I'm going to pardon them. That doesn't mean I'm righteous. At best, that might bring me up to neutral, but the fact that someone might not hold me accountable for my sins doesn't mean that my sins are not there, right? Just because He pardons them, I'm still not righteous. How can He declare someone righteous? And again, to account the person as righteous, that's the definition of justification. So we still need a little more. So we have another denial, denial number two. God accounts and accepts their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them. Nothing in them, nothing worked in them, nothing done by them. God accounts the sinner as righteous or declares them righteous, but not because He infused righteousness into them, not because He worked anything in them called righteousness, not because they done anything that's called righteous at all. It's, it kind of feels like we're running out of options. He declares us righteous, but it's not this. It's not infusing. It's not working. It's not working in us. It's not something we do. So then we move to another affirmation. And here is the bedrock of the doctrine of justification. Let me read it from the beginning. Those whom God effectually calls, He also freely justifies, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous not for anything wrought in them or done by them, here it comes, but for Christ's sake alone. Anytime that something is, is done for the sake of another, that means with a due consideration toward that person. So that's what this is saying. God justifies out of a due consideration of Christ 
alone. God freely justifies the sinner, not because He poured righteousness into them, not because He worked some virtue in them, not because they've done something righteous, but simply because He's taken into consideration Christ. That's the doctrine. So let's go back to the courtroom, because this is the picture. The evidence, as you stand in this court before God, the evidence is mounted against you, right? You're a sinner. There's no way out of it. You're guilty. You're as guilty as guilty can be. God's the judge and He's the one you have offended. You're guilty. All of the evidence is piled up. There you look at it. All of heaven and earth can look and say, this sinner is guilty. Then, new evidence is introduced. The evidence is Jesus Christ. Christ, the whole Christ, and nothing but the Christ. Nothing in the sinner is considered. Only Christ. Nothing wrought in the sinner or worked in the sinner is considered. Only Christ. The sinner himself, past, present, and future are set aside and Christ is brought in. And you can imagine, it's as if all of the eyes in the courtroom have now turned away from you. Everybody was looking at you, the guilty sinner. But now this new evidence is brought in. You've sort of been brushed over to the side. All of the eyes are now focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're thinking, wait a second. This is my case. I'm the one on trial here. What's happening? But in this instance, it is as if you are forgotten. And the Father, God the Father, the judge, looks down from His judge's bench into the eyes of His beloved Son with whom He is well pleased and says... Righteous. That's the doctrine. Righteous. That's the picture. 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31 says, Christ Jesus became to us righteousness. It didn't, it wasn't infused in us. It wasn't worked in us by the Holy Spirit. We didn't do anything but sin. And when the time for the trial came, we were set aside and Christ Himself was brought in as the righteousness of the sinner and God declares us righteous on account of Him. Romans 5.19 says, By the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That word made, we could, we would, we'd probably say appointed The many were appointed righteousness. And that's the key. The one man's obedience is the ground of justification for all who believe. It is all Christ. So if we're picturing a court scene, you know, one sinner steps in and Christ steps out in the hallway. All the evidence is weighed. They say, bring in the evidence. Christ steps in. Righteous. And he steps back out. Another sinner comes in. All of the evidence is brought in. Guilty. Bring in Christ. He steps back in. Righteous. He steps back out. And just over and over, this is what has happened in the case of the saints. All of the evidence is mounted against us and then Christ is just brought into our place, all Him. And He is considered, and out of a due consideration for Christ, the Father declares the sinner righteous in our place. Christ stands in our place. Now, just when you think we've reached the climax, the the confession returns to give a third denial. Christ's sake alone, not 
by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness. So God does not look at your faith and say, okay, I see your faith. Rather than requiring obedience, I'll take your faith instead. That's not what God does. He does not take your faith or the act of believing instead of obedience or any other evangelical obedience. God does not lower the standard of righteousness. He doesn't look and say, well, since none of you, clearly no one can meet my standard. You've all fallen short of my glory. No one can meet the standard. I'll lower the bar to what we're going to call evangelical obedience or gospel obedience. We'll, we'll call it that. And as you do that, though it falls far short of my actual righteousness, I'll count that instead. I'll, I'll lower the bar. And I'll count them righteousness on, on the base, basis of that. Well, we deny that as well. That's, that was Richard Baxter's view. We deny that. In justifying sinners... God in no way lowers the standard of His own perfect, matchless righteous, righteousness. God does not declare righteous what is not righteous. He's not a liar. He declares righteous based on a due consideration of Christ in the stead of the sinner. So there's the third denial, and then we come to another affirmation. Rather, God imputes to us... I'll read the whole sentence. Not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing Christ's active obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience in His death for their whole and soul righteousness. So we've come back to Christ. God credits Christ's active and passive obedience to the believer. When we talk about the active obedience of Christ, we're talking about His perfect life, His perfect obedience to all of the demands of God's law for, for around 33 years in His life, His perfect active obedience. When we're talking about His passive obedience, we're referring to His sufferings and death as the payment for our sins. He was punished for our sins. Passive there is to be related to uh, passion, as in something came upon Him. Actively, He obeyed, and then passively, He endured the wrath of God in the place of sinners. He suffered in our stead. We broke the law. He paid the penalty for the law. That's His passive obedience. So again, back to the illustration. Christ has entered into the courtroom, and He stands in the place of the sinner. That Christ, as the Father looks upon Him, this, this one has obeyed every precept of the law from His birth. He, he was even born uh, without the, the taint of sin in His very nature. And this one has also endured the wrath, the penalty of our sins. And because of our union with Christ, the obedience of Christ is credited to the believer and stands as their whole and soul righteousness. The work of Christ fulfills all of the demands of God, and it leaves no room for any addition on your part. You can add nothing, and if you try, it, it is, it is a, a, akin to blasphemy, to even try to insert anything or add anything to it. Whole and soul righteousness. 
all of your righteousness and only that which will be accepted, the only thing that God will accept in your place. Again, it is simply Christ, the whole Christ, and nothing but the Christ. At the moment of first faith and the imputation of the righteousness of Christ, God declares the sinner to be righteous. And He can do this and He can remain just because He looks not upon us but upon Christ. God remains just. His holy standard is unmoved. And the believing sinner is now treated by God as if He had done what Christ had done. That's the doctrine of justification. Now, to close, there might be some of you here that um, up until now maybe you've thought differently about Christianity. You think Christianity is different. You might think that simply following moral teachings, attending church, uh, enjoying the idea of heaven are, are basically synonymous with Christianity. All of those things equal Christianity. Or, or maybe you believe that God in the end, uh, because He's so kind, He will forgive your sins. Um, but if you do certain things and believe certain things, uh, follow certain moral teachings, in the end there's no way that God could send a good person like you to hell. A lot of people think that. Being a Christian, although it, it would include some of those types of things, it, that's not what makes a person a Christian. Being a Christian means that you have, in your heart, entered into or have been brought into this courtroom with God. And you've recognized that you stand condemned, that your, your sins are mounted against you, and if that is what God is going to look at, you're doomed. Now, you might be the type of person who says, well, I really don't have that many sins. Okay, let's just for the sake of argument say when the evidence is brought in, the only thing that can be brought in is one time you disobeyed your parents. That is enough evidence to send you to hell forever. That's enough. You've entered into that. You recognize that you stand condemned. You recognize that you have no way out. But you have also seen that Jesus Christ has lived the perfect life as your substitute, and that He has died under the punishment for your sins. And seeing Him enter the courtroom, you have willingly stepped aside and you've said, I will not insert myself any longer. I will, set a, I will step aside and I will cast my case, everything about me, my whole soul on Him. I will entrust my condition for eternity in His hands and I'll leave myself there with Him resting in the actions of this one man, Jesus Christ. That's what a Christian does. Now from that will come out things like attending church, following the moral teachings of Christ, and, and, and the great hope of eternity in heaven. But if, but if you've never come to this place where you've recognized, I stand condemned before God. Well, you're not a Christian. A Christian, that, that's where we, you have to be brought to that place. If that's, the kind of way, if that's the kind of thing that you have thought up until this point, then I would say with Scripture, today's the day of salvation. Today's the day where you say, look, I'm not, I'm not going to continue to insert myself in my own works, my own, my own trying, my own efforts into this, this court scene. Everything that I do is against me. I'm simply going to cast myself at the mercy of Christ, take hold of Christ Stop trying to earn God's favor. Stop trying to earn God's blessings. 
Stop trying to be good enough to get to heaven. Stop trying to fix yourself so that God will accept you. You just have to admit, I am a sinner. I am helpless. I can do nothing. And entrust yourself to Christ alone. Now, here's the amazing thing about this whole transaction. The, the turnaround rate is incredible. If you will do that today, you'll be saved today. It's like that. The moment of faith declared righteous because God has considered His Son. And that condition never changes for eternity. This very day, the courtroom of heaven will hear your case. The verdict will be declared righteous. And the Bible says that all of heaven will literally erupt in celebration at the, at the repentance of one sinner. Heaven rejoices. I think they rejoice... Yes, in the repentance of a sinner, but also in the, the triumph of the Prince of Heaven. They just love to see His, his righteousness and His works applied and, and, and his, his accomplishments uh, being applied to sinners, conquering and, and winning the victory that He died to accomplish. They, they love that in heaven. They rejoice to see their Prince exalted in the salvation of even one sinner. And again, that verdict stands forever. It can never be appealed it can never be repealed. It can never be changed. Nothing can be added to it or taken from it because Jesus Christ, the one who has stood in your stead, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Therefore, the condition can never change. It's just righteous for all of eternity because God has considered His Son. It's based solely on Him. When I consider these things as as often as I've articulated bits and pieces of this doctrine, and even as having covered this chapter before, I'm, I'm just astonished at how amazing the gospel is, how good the good news of the gospel is. This is... There's nothing better. There's, 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 no, other, there's no other option. But, but even if there were a thousand options, that God would consider His Son with whom He is eternally pleased in my place and then extend His grace to me because He's looked upon His Son. We have a, a good gospel, a, a wonderful gospel. We have, we have really, really good news. And we should be, we should be excited enough about it to, to preach it and to tell it to people, to share it to people. So let's, let's pray and then we'll stand and sing a song together.